you know, Don says he's blessed, but boy, I'm blessed, and I know we all are blessed, and, and uh, not just Don, but, the, but really it's a, a whole team of, of people that really do, um, you know, I feel like they sacrifice a lot. They would say that, that they're just having a ball, you know, they, but they're here, you know, Wednesday nights, and, and really their ministering to us is a huge deal, and so I'm grateful for all of them, and, and uh, they minister to me each week um, during the worship time. Uh, <clears throat> all right, First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, we'll pray. And we'll look at this passage. Father, we, we pause now, Lord, to call out to you for help. Lord, we look to you for guidance. Um, Father, we come to your word uh, reverently, with open minds and hearts and Father, I pray that as we work through these short verses and celebrate uh, Lord's, the Lord's Supper today, Father, I ask that you would help us in our understanding of, of what's said here, um, that you would help us to see how it applies to our lives. I pray for each person that's here, that's hearing this. Um, Father, if there are individuals that don't know you as Savior, Lord, I ask that you would um, help them to move into relationship with you. Um, sometimes there's resistance. Sometimes there's just a lack of clarity on the gospel. And, and so, Father, I, I pray that this day that you would help us to, um, to understand the gospel clearly. Um, and if we haven't responded to it, that you would help those um, to come to saving faith in you. We thank you that uh, it really is a, a gift <clears throat> and really is simple, um, hearing what Christ did and believing. And Father, for those of us who have responded uh, to the gospel, Lord, we ask that you would move fresh in our hearts as we just sang, that you would light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Um, Lord, help us to encounter you. Um, help us never to move away from the core of Christianity, which is Jesus and what he did on that cross some 2,000 years ago. We uh, pray that you would help us to encounter him, the living God, today. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. <clears throat> I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Um, today's passage is, is short. It's, um, 
simple in many respects. It's, it's, it, it, it is uh, kind of the essence of Christianity. We find ourselves in a bit of uh, the hinge of Timothy. In the middle of his writing, he, he shares with Timothy and with us um, the, the purpose of his writing. I know that many weeks leading up to this point, we, we often come to this verse and, and uh, keep it in mind. Uh, if you find a book of the Bible where there's a verse where the author, inspired by God, uh, informs the readers of their purpose of writing, it's very important to sort of take note. Um, because if you take note of the purpose statement, it helps everything to sort of be filtered through that. Uh, uh, the end of the Gospel of John is a classic example. I think it's in chapter 20, verse, I don't know, somewhere towards the end. Um, the Apostle John says, the things I'm writing to you, I'm, I'm, I'm writing because I desire individuals who are reading this to come to saving faith in Christ. And that's my paraphrase. Um, but so when we know that, it's like, okay, when you're in John chapter 1, you, you know the author's intent is to try to move people from unbelief to belief. And so every verse of John, you kind of read it through that filter. So in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, each word John is using to try to help move an individual from belief to unbelief. And so here in verse 14, we, we see... Uh, these words, we, we get a little bit of a sort of a behind-the-scenes picture of what's happening um, at the time of writing. So we read, I am writing these things to you. So as a memory from the very first two verses, we know who's writing. It's the Apostle Paul. Who's he writing to? He's writing to young Timothy, who is a young pastor, who uh, was a mentor of Paul, was with Paul through much of his ministry, um, he was there with Paul, uh, or, or he was the man who Paul cried out to um, near the end of his life in Second Timothy. And from this letter, we, we realize that Paul had left Timothy in this place called Ephesus. It was a city in modern-day uh, Turkey on the western side of Turkey. It's a, a port town, or it was a port town at the time. Um, he left him there to correct some issues, and we looked at those issues in chapter one leading into chapter two, um, and he sort of outlined the leadership structure within the body of Christ. And so he now informs Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. So we don't really know where Paul was. We know where Timothy was. He was in Ephesus. It's believed um, that Paul was in Macedonia. He said, I left you there before I departed from Macedonia, whether uh, he's actually in Macedonia, which would be modern-day Greece. Uh, we don't know. Most people think he was in, in Greece at the time. But he's hoping to get back to Timothy, but there were some pressing things that he needed to get to Timothy. So uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he pins this letter that we know is First Timothy. He sent it with somebody. That person delivered it to Timothy. Midway through the letter, we learn, or Timothy learned, that Paul was hoping to come to him soon. But Paul didn't know his schedule, or he didn't know the circumstances of his travel, what things would pop up. And he says, if I'm delayed, these are the things that I want you to know for this purpose. Um, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So he says, the whole purpose of 1 Timothy is to give Timothy instructions as the elder of the church, how to lead and guide 
those who have called Christ Lord within the, the body, the, the collection or corporate worship, how individuals are to conduct themselves in worship. We see phrases, uh, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Um, <clears throat> the first phrase we, we notice is the household of God. I, this, this word household has really sort of caught my attention this week. Um, it's an interesting word. Uh, when I think of household, I think family. I think um, diversity of characters. Um, our, our family members are not necessarily people, if we were choosing a team to assemble, who they would always be the people that we would assemble in our team. You always have the crazy uncle or you know, just a collection of people, but you're placed together, united through, um, through something. N- namely, bloodlines blood is sort of what households are united by. But the household of God is different. It's, we have a collection of people. I, I believe that we have a collection of ages. Um, but it's this household of God. It's used, I forget the actual count, but it's in the 80s, like 83 times, if my memory's right, between the Old and the New Testament. Um, most of those occurrences are dealing in the Old Testament. Most of the occurrences deal with um, the tabernacle, that the tabernacle is referred to as the house of God, that Moses, when he got the Ten Commandments, he was, this whole structure was given a place for how Israel was to live and uh, worship as a people. Uh, in the center of the, the, the people, there was the tabernacle. We went through Hebrews and looked at a lot of this. Um, so most references deal with the tabernacle and the people of Israel surrounding, um, surrounding the temple. When we get to the New Testament, this phrase, household of God, is only used, I think, three times. And there's a, 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 a seismic shift. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a major change. It moves from a location to a people. So the household of God um, is no longer a physical location, but a collection of people who have united through their identification with Jesus. It, it's, a, it's a huge shift. Um, this idea of thinking that the church is a location, and I know I've gotten ahead, but we know that from the next phrase, the household of God is described as the church. And so we think of uh, church as being a location. Um, If you travel, if you make the trip to Israel, you'll be able to see... uh, um, basilicas and these, these fascinating churches that are no longer uh, houses of worship, but they're sort of um, relics. Um, I'm always asked, well, what's the attire like in Israel? Israel's super liberal in large part, very relaxed. It's a lot like San Diego. But we always tell people, you got to bring some pants. And girls, bring something that covers your shoulders or a shawl or something because we'll visit locations that are viewed as, quote-unquote, holy sites. Um, the, the Western Wall is a, is a holy site. Um, I should say holy site, my air quotations. And, and the reason it's holy is for the Jewish people, this is the closest spot that they know of 
to being to the actual temple, the, the place where we know that God's presence was. And so to go there in shorts and flip-flops, but actually I think the Western Wall you can, but you cannot go up on the Temple of the Mount casually. Um, we're told it's a holy site, so put on your Sunday best. Probably coming to church, oh, you're going to church, you have to put on your Sunday best, how you dress, how you walk. And, and so we get into this idea that the church is a building. I'm, I'm very thankful for our church building. I'm thankful for the land that we have. Um, we are blessed to have this little spot to worship. Uh, the thing I love most about this church is it's so plain. I mean, a lot, like this is, like there's houses in Valley Center that basically are bigger than that, the building that we're in. I love that when you walk into this building, it's like there's beige walls. There's not a whole lot of uh, pomp and circumstance. We very rarely ever get requests to, by outsiders to say, can we use your ch- church building to have a, a wedding ceremony? Or if we do, they've never been here, so I'll get a call and say, oh, you want to get married at our church? Have you been there? Uh-uh. But the location, I'm like, well, we, if we can serve you in some way, we would be happy to, but you might want to come look at the building. And this is not an a, a impressive cathedral. <laughs> that, uh, um, it's a building where the church gathers. And Paul writes concerning this, this gathering of the church, this, this gathering of people that there is a, a, a way in which followers of Christ should conduct themselves when they are gathered together. Um, during the first service, I said I wish I'd, in my notes, I'm not much of a manuscript, I, I wish I had written out more on my thoughts so that I wasn't sort of shooting from the hip. But on this point, I don't know whether it's funny or sad concerning our culture of Christianity, especially in the United States, um, where Christians in their search and quest for a church, um, that it's viewed sort of like they're interviewing. And, and I don't, I, it's important to be at a church that teaches the Bible that's healthy, that's vibrant. I'm all for healthy churches. Um, I'm arguing with myself right now, just so you guys know. <laughs> um, but, but the idea of, of Christians saying, well, when I go to church, I want to examine the programs and the this and the that, and, and how's, the, how's the worship, sort of interviewing the worship team, and how's um, everything is based sort of about them, and what can the church do for me, and if I give... This is an exchange of services. So if I'm going to put a buck in the offering, I better be getting something in return for it. Um, but when I look at the instructions in the New Testament to those who follow after Christ, it, it's, it's about you've been gifted. Um, you have something to contribute to the body. You're supposed to serve to the body of Christ, which is the church. Um, it's about giving, not receiving. And, and here, as Paul writes, he says, I'm writing these things in the letter of Timothy so that those who follow Christ would know the expectations on them as they worship Christ. This is a, a serious thing. Um, he says, church of the living God. The word church is a, probably a word that we're too familiar with. If you ask people what is church, they probably identify with a building, a location, 
The word in Greek is ekklesia. It actually means the called out ones. And here we have, so the, the called out ones of the living God, which it, it's, it's this beautiful picture. We, we you know, our, our friends that are from the, the Seattle area, I was joking this morning with, about my sister who was ripped out of San Diego because of love and she had to go to Seattle, and it's, it's, she loves her husband, but she's not such a fan of the weather up there, being a California girl. And so last year, we visited on our anniversary. Our anniversary just happens to be in February, which I've learned is not a great time to visit Seattle. <laughs> and it was freezing, and it was wet, and it was just miserable the whole time. And on uh, one of the mornings, we were drinking our coffee, getting ready to go take on the day out in Seattle. Uh, my sister was heading to work, but she's like, oh, it's a beautiful day. The sun is out. And I, at her, her, her kitchen sort of overlooked this lake. And all I saw was gray clouds and rain. And I, I was like, Sonia, are you look, where, are you, where are you looking? It, I, it's literally there's, the rain is falling from the sky right now. And she's like, no, 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 no. You've got to look, look that way. And on the horizon, you can see there's a beam of light <laughs> coming down. And they said, Sony, you need to come back to San Diego. You've been up here for too long. This, this does not constitute a beautiful sunny day. <clears throat> but it's that picture of a, a, you know, a dark world and a ray of light is sort of the image that I have in my mind that, that God from heaven has called out to his people now, I'm not going to get into a great theological argument because I'm not God, so I'm not qualified to answer, but um, I, I do think that God's calling out to all people. I think that Christ's death on the cross was for all people. Um, but then in the midst of that, there are those who respond and become the called out ones. And so the the the, the picture here, the household of God, which is, like that's a warm word to me, like like a like family. There's love and there's grace and and your uncle, your you know I got brothers that are just crazy and they're not Christian, but I because they're my family, I love them and I can forgive them and I uh, and and within the church, the description of a family is is beautiful. Um, then we get to church, the word that means the called out ones the called out ones of the living God, there's this picture of the Father in heaven calling out, calling his people, gathering his children together. And becoming a part of this family is pretty easy, you believe. And so there's this, there's this collection of his people. And his people, there's expectations for how you're to live and to worship and to function, not for salvation. Salvation is belief. It's not based on works, but there are expectations on us as followers of Christ. He says uh, in our conduct, he moves on from the church of the living God. Description of the church of the living God, we move into the pillar and support of the truth. The word the is there. This, um, by our culture of relativism and, and what you believe is what you believe and what you believe is right and what I believe is right and it doesn't matter if there's confliction there. We live in a culture where that your truth is your truth, my, tr- tr- my truth is my truth. But that's not what the scripture indicates. See, it, the scripture is very clear that there is the truth. 
God, and people get all wrapped around that. Well, well, that just doesn't seem fair. I'm like, I'm just grateful that God gave a way for us to get saved. And so this picture, the pillar and support of the truth, I, I can't help but to think that, that Paul, in his use of the word pillar, is identifying with something that would have been very common, a, 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 almost like a, a cultural pushing back of the people in Ephesus. So what Ephesus is known for, it's this port city, it was this... Um, this, people from all over the world were there. It was a huge metropolitan area, huge money, resource. But the thing that they were really known for was the Temple of Diana or Artemis. It's the same thing. Uh, the temple was, it's one of the um, in seven wonders of the ancient world. And all of the commerce, everything revolved around her. They sold trinkets. You can go visit Turkey today and see the remnants of, of everything. In Acts, there's a great story you know, great as Artemis, they're like burning all the stuff and there's this big outcry. Paul's almost killed there. It's one of the many times uh, that he got in trouble. But the next slide, if we can go over there, I want to show you a picture or a painting, I should say, or a drawing. It's one of the above. I don't, it's not a picture uh, as far as like a photo. <clears throat> but this was the temple of Artemis. And so the city of Ephesus, it was sort of a port town surrounded by a big mountain. There was a theater and all kinds. I mean, everything that you wanted in the, the, that era, it was there. On top of the hill was the temple Diana or Artemis, whatever you want to call it. Here's, here's the people. I forget how many pillars there were supporting the, the, the roof. I, I think it was like 30-something. I, I, I should have looked that up before I started seeing but there's a lot of pillars. And uh, uh, this, I, this, this goddess of fertility, it led to all sorts of Weird, worship, weird from our perspective, worship, uh, sexual immorality. Um, it, it, sh- this temple influenced everything. But what she was known for, great as Artemis, look at her pillars. I mean, if these are people, we're talking ginormous, if that's a word. It's my word. I like it. And it's huge. And so they're known for these pillars. Today, thousands of years later, you can go to Turkey and see remnant of these pillars. I don't know how they did it. You know, we always talk about the ancient people like they were slow, they weren't smart, they didn't know what they were talking about. Like, we would have a tough time building this with, like, caterpillars, and like Caterpillar, John Deere, all these heavy equipment guys. Like, we, can get it, we could get the job done, but that's, how did they do that? And so when he writes, the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. So I see those pillars supporting the roof. It was an image that, that the people of Ephesus, they would know, that Timothy would know. Paul is pushing back. She's not truth. That's a false religion. There is the truth, and it's been revealed to us in Christ and his word, and that's what you're to stand for. Um, he, he moves on to a hymn, possibly hymn. You can go back to the previous slide. Um, he's going to reference this hymn, By Common Confession, Great is the Mystery of Godliness. So this is either a hymn, a poem, a doxology of sorts. We don't know exactly how these next six lines were used in the culture. All we know is that by, this t- by the time of writing, that these six lines amongst God's people, they, that this doxology, this hymn, um, it was known by all of them. It, that this, that this, these six lines were written with, Key doctrinal truths concerning Jesus. It's fascinating to me as I've looked at this when he says, I, I want, I'm writing so that you would know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Where does he begin? He begins with Jesus. 
Like, Jesus is front and center. Jesus is the jugular vein. You, you can't remove him or these truths or adjust them to say, oh, Jesus was just a good t- teacher. You, you, you can't. And going into chapter 4, he's going to start addressing heresy and things that started cre- creeping up. And so right here, the jugular vein, the thing that he wants Timothy to know about conduct is keeping Jesus front and center, the gospel at the forefront of everything that the church does. By church, not the building, it's the people of God. Our songs that we sing, the gospel is there. Um, The word of God is proclaimed. We take communion to remind us about the work that Jesus did on the cross. So we say great, uh, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Mystery is something that's kind of hard for us to understand. Some would say mystery is something that's been concealed by God, later to be revealed. But even in the Revelation, there these six things, some of them are just mysterious that are hard for us to fathom. The, the first, he who is revealed in the flesh. If you have a King James Version, I'm not sure about the New King James if a revision was made, but yours might say um, God in the flesh, which is okay. The later texts have the word. There's, it's really... Um, between he and God in the Greek, it's, it's an additional two letters. And so we don't really know, but the, there's, there's, um, there's no conflict here. It's, like, it's saying the same thing. I never know how much to like, shed light on, but people say, oh, the Bible's so full of hypocrisy or, or the, 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 the texts have been um, compromised and there's all sorts of errors between the various ones. The, <laughs> he who is revealed in the flesh or a God who is revealed in the flesh it means the same exact thing. And, and what it's saying is front and center about Jesus is the incarnation. This is the Christmas story that God became man. I can think of no greater mystery than the hypostatic union of Christ. This is his dual nature, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. It's a mystery. How, how does this work? God made it work, but when we come to Christ, we have the picture of the Father. All through the New Testament, it's clear that Jesus is all man and all God. And so truth number one, the incarnation, that God took on the form of man, and he lived the perfect life. We're going to end with an old hymn that's been converted to a modern song, Glorious Day, Oh, living, he loved me. And this picture that in the incarnation that he loved us by walking uh, and being a display for us as an example of how to live our lives, walking for us in perfection so that when he went to the cross, he would be able to make the sacrifice on our behalf. It's a beautiful thing. Was vindicated in the spirit. What does this mean? We don't really use crucifixions anymore, or at least in our part of the world, there are some countries that would still use crucifixion, mainly on Christians, to mock them. But this to be vindicated in the spirit, we need to understand the view of crucifixion and how uh, repulsive and shameful and horrific it was uh, to be nailed to a cross. Galatians 3.13, there Paul writes, um, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
And so here we have Jesus, the God-man, living the perfect life, yet the end of his life is marked by hanging naked on a tree, beaten, his flesh torn from his body from the whippings, uh, unidentifiable uh, towards gender, the, the most horrific way of dying. Most people would die from the beating that they received, but crucifixion in its uh, a, a, a true right is that the person would ultimately suffocate. Um, they would have to stand up on their legs to basically exhale, and as they went down, it would fill their lungs up, That's why the Roman soldiers would go around and break their legs so they could no longer exhale. It would speed things up. And so here, the Messiah hung on a cross, cursed. That the wrath of God that was due me and you was placed upon him and he fully absorbed this wrath. The Bible makes it clear that those who hang on a cross are cursed. And I think the picture is, as Paul describes in Romans 1.4, where he writes, speaking of Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the story didn't end on the cross. He was taken down. He was buried in the garden tomb. Three days later, he rose again. And this power of the spirit that raised him from the dead was vindication by the Spirit that the story wasn't over. He conquered death. And because of his conquering death, we have hope, we have life, because he was our substitute. He says, seen by angels. I, the Bible tells us that angels will never experience salvation. They're, they're, they're observing, observing this great story of redemption, but they never, ever will experience it. Those that fell will never be restored. They just look down and and wonder. But all through the course of Jesus' ministry, we see that angels uh, were there and testified and and observed the whole thing. We see uh, before his birth, John the Baptist, when his parents found out in the temple that he was going to be born of Elizabeth, this barren woman, it was an angel that came and testified. That same angel went to Mary. That same angel went to Joseph. Um, I don't know if it was the same angel, but we know that there were angels as Jesus was being uh, tempted in the wilderness. Uh, We see angels at the resurrection story. We see angels observing and participating in the story of Jesus. We see proclaimed among the nations that the gospel has always been about all nations, all people groups. Christianity is not an American thing. Christianity is not a Jewish thing. Well, we could say it's a Jewish thing. But the Jewish people were set apart for the whole world to see something different about them. The thing that Jesus left us with was the Great Commission to proclaim to all the nations. And so we, as followers of Christ, whether you like it or not, you've been commissioned to participate in the Great Commission. Not all of us are called to go to the remotest places of the earth, but we're all called to pray and to partner, uh, to be in uh, relationship with the team. I think that that's one thing that our church does really well. We are a small church, and it boggles my mind to hear from our missionaries that are supported from huge churches 
And I'm not knocking huge churches because they write huge checks to them, which they need. But, but our specialty, that our, to hear of so many of our missionaries say, I just feel so supported by Grace Point Church. Um, the package is going to be sent out later this week, so be praying for it. You know, to get to a former communist country is always a challenge. Uh, we've, we have a 100% rate, and so we just pray that this package would get there in the next couple weeks. Um, but I want to thank all of you who brought supplies and letters and, and prayers um, to, to send this gift to the guest family. Um, the, the reason that we're so committed to our, the missionaries that we're partnered with is because the Bible makes it clear that God is the God of the nations, and so we want to do our part in partnering with those that are serving around the world. Um, he says, believed on in the world. <clears throat> so now we're on point number five. <clears throat> so we have, he was revealed in the flesh, incarnation. We have vindication that he was raised by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and then believed on in the world, that as Jesus went through his death, burial, and resurrection, that people responded in belief to this great mystery. The whole idea that we can be made right with a living God through believing in Christ is a mystery. Um, I love the story of, uh, found in John 3. You know, the most well-known verse of John 3.16, we all know that. For God so loved the world... Um, that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that whoever shall believe upon him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Close. I've got notes here, so I'm not, I'm terrible at quoting word for word. <clears throat> but that whole context started with Nicodemus, who was this high priest who came, and he snuck to Jesus in the middle of the night and said, I have some questions. I've heard about you. I believe, but he's sort of concealing from the rest of the people as he was communicating with Jesus. Jesus begins to talk with him and uh, to, in essence, share about God's concern for the people and desiring a relationship with the, the people. And it, by the, the verse 9, Nicodemus is looking at him and saying, like when Jesus gets to you must be born again part, Nicodemus is just like, how can, how can these things be? I don't get it. This doesn't make any sense. And it was Jesus that spoke, John 3.16, that that he came so that this gospel, this gift could be presented to the world and that people would believe upon him. And that's how you move from being in condemnation in Adam to in Christ. It's through belief. It's not about works. It's not about saying the right thing, praying a special prayer, it, it, not, none of that. It's about hearing the gospel. And at some moment after hearing the gospel, you move from rejection of God, that's the default to, I believe that he did that for me. And I believe in that moment, the Spirit of God baptizes you, that you're created into a new creation, that you're secure for the day of redemption, and it's a great mystery. And then the last point, taken up in glory. We don't serve a dead prophet, we serve a living God. And the point of all of this, it's... I hope that there are not people here who are forced to come to church, but I also acknowledge that there are probably people who are sitting here in this room who are here because they've been forced by somebody to be here. I was in your shoes for many, many years. Um, 
The reason that we're here to worship, we're here to worship. And my prayer is for those of you that are on the outside looking in, that the reality of what Christ did would become real to you and that you would understand that there is hope in him. That he is standing there with his hands, plural, asking you to come, receive the gift, be transformed, be made anew. Because then coming here and just hearing some songs, and do it, it changes everything. When we sing songs, we're worshiping our creator. When we engage with one another, I don't like all you. I mean, I don't say that. Like, when I became a Christian, I didn't really like Christians. Like, they were way different than me. Like, like, and there are people in this room who are like, become some of my best friends in the world that I would never hang out with you had it not been for Christ making us family. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. Like, we're all different. And I, I like genuinely love our church family. But apart from Christ, like I don't say that like I'm trying to get away. Like I got to like, this is like, I got the shovel. Like if I didn't have Christ in my life, I wouldn't be hanging out with most of the people in this room. Like there's a few hooligans in here. Maybe we'd be hanging out. But I heard a laugh. <laughs> Fred's laugh gives away. <laughs> Fred's like, I'd be hanging out with a bed. <laughs> it's like, but like in Christ, suddenly you all are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're united through his blood. And I'll, I'll, I'll serve you and love you and do whatever, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's amazing what God can do in our lives. But he doesn't do it against our will. So the church celebrates two ordinances. If you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to, uh, end with communion. I, I'd like to allot enough time for communion so that we're not just sort of tacking it on at the end. Communion actually comes with some great warnings. So there are two, there are two ordinances that have been left for the church to, to participate in. The first is Baptism. So followers of Christ, when you have believed upon Christ, you are instructed um, that following belief that you're to be baptized, baptism is a a symbol, it is a picture of what's happened inwardly. Um, Communion is very much a symbol. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 is the, I think, the clearest teaching on communion in the whole of the scriptures. A part I don't normally read that I'm going to read today is starting in verse 17 because I think it all ties together. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, uh, we're going to kind of see some of the brokenness of the Corinthian church. This, this church was a mess. This is, like the, this is like the Jerry Springer church where uh, like, like everything that, like the relationships were broken, how they were doing stuff was broken. We'll see here that there's, there's, friction amongst the the people that there were wealthy ones who were getting blasted at church there were poor ones that weren't having access to anything and and paul is scolding them for how they were doing communion but in but praise the lord for their disobedience and their uh, mishandling of communion because if it wasn't for their problem we wouldn't have this clear teaching on well how do we do it and so paul begins in verse 17 but in giving this instruction, I, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for wor- the worse. 
For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord. He's going to go into the Lord's Supper. But I'm going to skip us down to verse 27 and we'll loop back around. So verse 27 carries a warning concerning communion. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man and woman must examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That means that they've passed away. They have died for handling communion inappropriately. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So the first thing that I'm going to say is we're going to take communion sort of in parts. Uh, The guys are going to come up, whoever the four guys are, they're going to pass out communion. If you guys could come up, that would be great. And just be ready. Um, So the first time, as the communion goes out, these guys are going to pass out the elements, a broken cracker, which for those of you who it matters to you, they're all gluten-free crackers. Um, they're going to pass out the crackers and the juice. But what I want you to do is just to to sit there and hold them until the very, very end. I'll let you know when it's okay to take uh, the elements. But the first thing that we see about communion in verses 27 through 33 is that this is a time for us to examine our hearts. This is a time for us to, to reflect on our relationship with the Lord. It's a time for us to confess. Um, if you are not a Christian, communion is not for you. And, and so no, there's no judgment here, but if, if you're n- not a believer, then don't, don't take communion because it, it's not really a point for you to take it. But if you're not a believer and you'd like to be one, you probably already are by the time I'm talking to you because it's hearing the facts about the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures, for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose from the grave and that he appeared to many, many people following that. And we're told that he did that on our behalf as our substitute. And so becoming a Christian is responding to that, uh, that proposition, that he did this for you. So your default is you reject it, but if you believe, you're a Christian. But for those of us who are Christians... We're not sinless. We're saved sinners. Uh, To illustrate this, um, 
with any relationship that you have. Um, let's go with husband and wife. Um, husband and wife in covenant with one another. Husband and wives fight. Amen. So, or maybe just us sometimes. <laughs> you have disagreements. And when there's a disagreement between any two people who are friends, you're not likely to want to communicate with them as well. And so the way to restore that is to confess, to, to renew the relationship, and then you, um, you know, you're back in cahoots with one another, that you're all buddies, you're all chummy. And so as Christians, Christ's work on the cross was sufficient. We're told that after belief, you're sealed by the Spirit. And so as a Christian, you're saved. But when you sin, you're sinning against God and it breaks the relationship. And so communion is a time for us to come back to the nuts and bolts of Christianity, to go back to the cross, to examine our lives, to, to confess our sins. Uh, maybe you have worry, anxiety, uh, um, pains, uh, uh, anger, resentment. You guys can fill in the blank. You confess these to God. You call out to him for help. If you can't think of anything, I'll point you to pride. <clears throat> Seriously. Like, because if you can't think of anything, you're, you're, you're measuring against the wrong thing. See, our standard is God and his holiness, and none of us meet that standard. And so we're told that as we confess in 1 John 1, verses 8 through 9, we're told that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first part of communion, and, I, and I'd like the worship team just to, to, um, to stay seating, seated so that they have freedom to take communion. Um, so we'll just sit here in silence. The elements are going to go out. And as they're going out, I just encourage you to, to bow your head and, and, and to talk to God and to confess, knowing that the confession is not to beat you up, it's to restore you to him. And so, Father, we do thank you for your mercifulness to us. We thank you for your kindness, your long-suffering, which is patience with us. We thank you for your mercy, for none of us are worthy. None of us deserve salvation. Not only did you withhold wrath from us, but you poured it out onto your son. And we thank you that he absorbed totally and completely the punishment that was due us. And Father, as the elements go out, we just ask that you would bring to mind areas in our life where we have not surrendered control to you, sin that we're clinging on to. Lord, convict us of our sin so that we would repent of it, that we would be washed new. Lord, give us the strength to move forward in our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. And Father, it was Jesus that told us that he would send his spirit as a, a, a convictor. And Lord, um, we now have that spirit within us. And we ask that you would help us to be sensitive to his voice. Father, we ask that you would... Um, 
healed the scars of our uh, seared conscience at times. Lord, help us to hear your voice. Lord, help us to um, be sensitive to times when we're in sin and you zap us by your spirit. Um, Lord, help us not to harden our hearts, but to respond to you with confession. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who has forgiven us in Christ. I pray, Lord, um, that you would help each of us to, uh, to receive this forgiveness. I know um, it's been a difficult thing for myself to, to receive this gift. Um, I'm prone to beat myself up for the past and the sin in my history. And I know when I do that, I... I I cheapen the cross. And so, Father, I pray that you would help myself and all of us to truly uh, experience and understand the forgiveness that has been made available uh, to us. As we hear sirens in the background, we do pray for uh, these first responders whatever they're encountering right now, that you would help them. We thank you for them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Um, So the first part is is to look inward to confess. The second aspect is found in verses 23 through 24. We read, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as they were gathered there at the, at the, um, at the room celebrating the Passover, one of the things, they would have unleavened bread. So it was flat bread to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus on this night, he hadn't been, well, he'd been betrayed, but he hadn't been arrested and crucified. But he took the bread, he, he tore it, And as he tore it, he told them, he's like, hey, guys, this is my body, which is broken for you. We remember, we reflect, we have a memorial of sorts of that night and the work on the cross. So we hold a broken cracker in our hands to remind us of that horrific day when Jesus was beaten, bruised, scourged, beyond what any of us could possibly imagine. Because every image of the crucifixion that we've ever seen in our life, it has been so uh, skimmed for um, being appropriate to show that it was horrific. And he says, this is my body that was broken for you. I can't help but to think that those 12 And the early church that witnessed the crucifixion, that they had post-traumatic stress in in seeing the events that unfolded, that when they came to Passover and they broke the bread and they saw this little piece of bread, that the images of what Christ went through would come to the forefront of their thinking. And I think that's exactly what it's supposed to do. We're supposed to be reminded of that night. And he says, verse 25, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Last year we 
we spent the year going through Hebrews. And if there was one message of Hebrews, it was that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient. It's not repeated over and over and over again. It was once and for all. It was sufficient. And through him, we've entered into this new covenant that by his blood, we have access to the holiest of holies. And so we reflect that his body was broken for us. Through his blood, we've gained access once and for all through his sacrifice. And in verse 26, there's the fourth aspect of communion that is so often overlooked. Whether you like it or not, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been uh, commissioned to proclaim the good news of Christ with the world around you, with your family members that don't know Jesus, with your neighbors that don't know Jesus, with the people you work with who know Jesus, the lady at the grocery store who doesn't know Jesus, who, whoever, that he's commissioned us as his ambassadors to proclaim Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Father, we thank you. Not for this cracker or this juice that we hold in our hand, but for the source, the original copy of what these symbols stand for. This broken cracker reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken. Lord, help us to understand how vile our sin was, to understand what Christ had to endure for us. We thank you that he stood in our place, that he was our substitute, and that his offering was sufficient and complete, totally and completely. Fathers, we hold this juice. We thank you for the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, we now have access to you. You've cleansed us deep within. Help us to understand the sufficiency of the cross. Lord, help us to stop beating ourselves up for the past. Help us to press on to our upward call in Christ. Father, as we grow closer to you, we acknowledge our fears of sharing Jesus with this world that thinks it's foolishness. Lord, give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Lord, fill our mouths with words to share that point people to Jesus. Help our hands and feet to model the gospel in all that we do. We pray for our community as a church, Lord, that you would grow us deeper in relationship with one another. Help us to use our gifts that you've given us for your glory and for the benefit of our community. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.